I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. We welcome back to The Truth of the Matter, Dr. John Alterman, my great colleague, who is a star of this podcast, not to mention the Middle East Program Director, the Brzezinski Chair in Geostrategy, and a Senior Vice President at CSIS. John, welcome back. Thanks, Andrew. So, President Biden is off to the Middle East from July 13th to 16th. He has avoided going to the Middle East up until now. I have to ask, is it energy that's changed this? Is it the politics that have changed this? Why is he going now? You know, it kind of feels to me like it's time. I mean, he's been to Asia. He's been to Europe. He had the Summit of the Americas in California. So I think in some ways, it's the natural order of things. The president had wanted to avoid overemphasizing the Middle East. But I think the president also understands when you go to Asia, when you go to Europe, one of the things they're concerned about is the Middle East. They're concerned about the American presence in the Middle East. They're concerned about threats to security, stability, to energy security in the Middle East. And one of the things they want is for the United States to have a leading role pushing the region toward greater stability, dealing with threats. And in some ways, he didn't want to overemphasize it, but he can't ignore it. And the previous trips he made emphasized the importance that our allies place on us having a a sustained role in the Middle East. That's interesting. I wanted to ask you also, the Middle East has been known as a place where U.S. presidential ideas go to die. Why have U.S. presidents struggled to have successful diplomatic relationships in the region? A lot of U.S. presidents get hung up on the idea of of hitting home runs. And whether it's Arab-Israeli peace or getting the Iranians to really fundamentally change their orientation toward the United States and the world. I think a lot of presidents look and say there's there's something really important to do here. There's a relatively small number of actors, and I can make this go. I think the president is doing this trip, and he's looking for a whole bunch of singles. There are a large number, an almost stunning number, of really small, incremental, almost bureaucratic things He's going to move forward. I think you're going to see some of those things on Saudi-Israeli normalization. You're going to see some of those things on integrated regional security. You're going to see some of those things on energy in terms of oil, some of those things on energy transition issues, technology cooperation. I think you're, you're going to see a lot of small things. I don't think the president has big plans for the Middle East. I think the president looks at the U.S. history in the Middle East. And says, the United States isn't going to fundamentally make over this region. But there are things in this region that matter to Americans, that matter to American national security. And I'm going to move those forward. So again, not swinging for the fences. He's looking to just get a bunch of singles. Is that going to do it? I mean, you know, one of the things that's lingering over this that people are constantly talking about is, is is he really going over there to make a deal with Saudi Arabia to increase supply of oil into the system. I don't think there's going to be a deal to increase supply. You know, the oil market is very complicated. 
predicting what the demand will be in six months is hard, but sometimes it can take three to six months to increase production. It's a guessing game what you're what targets you're trying to meet. I think he's trying to reach a greater sense of understanding with the Saudis. I think as the president has experienced life in the White House, he has come to realize what a lot of American presidents have come to realize, which is there are an awful lot of things that matter to the United States that are a lot easier to do if the Saudis are on your side and a lot harder to do if the Saudis are trying to undermine you. I think the president said, you know what? This this sense that there's a wall is keeping us from advancing our interests. One of them is greater human rights around the world, including in Saudi Arabia, but it's a whole bunch of them. And I think the president said, we're just gonna bear down, not looking forward to, to, to an engagement with the crown prince, but he'll engage with the crown prince. And he'll move forward a broad array of issues that will get us off the conversation of will he or won't he, will he or won't he, and get us to the conversation of, okay, so what do we actually have to do together? And what are the Saudis doing that are advancing American interests? And what does the United States have to do to, to sustain that? Now, President Biden has some damage control to do here with Saudi Arabia. Indeed, he said when he became president, he was going to make Saudi Arabia pay for the death of Jamal Khashoggi. What does he need to do? I have written for CSIS. I've said to other people, I think the murder of Jamal Khashoggi is going to be a stain on Saudi Arabia for years to come. The president's not going to erase the stain. The president going to Saudi Arabia doesn't erase the stain. That's going to inhibit people. The mass imprisonment of people in the Ritz-Carlton and the perception that people were forced to sign over assets, sign confessions without due process of law inhibits people from investing in Saudi Arabia. The fact that, that people say the taxation regime in Saudi Arabia is totally unpredictable. They come after me for 10 years of, of previous profits. I don't know. There's not a predictable environment inhibits people from engaging with Saudi Arabia. The sense that the, the public investment fund is an independent business entity and you can find yourself competing against the government inhibits people from investing in Saudi Arabia. So I think there are a lot of things about Saudi Arabia that give a lot of people pause. I don't think the president gets rid of those things by going to Saudi Arabia. I don't think the, the things that the Saudis have done get erased by the president going to Saudi Arabia, but the president is advancing American interests, joint projects, trying to build on common interests, and in many ways kicks off a process of sustained engagement, which gives the Saudis more reasons in the future to cooperate with the United States and to be aligned with things the United States is trying to do in the region and elsewhere. Do you think it's any coincidence that Vladimir Putin today, we're talking on Tuesday, July 12th, announced that he would be going to Tehran next week? Do you think there's any correlation between that and President Biden's visit to the region? There's total correlation. I think Putin is concerned that the U.S. is going to have greater alignment 
with other major oil producers, and that's not going to redound to his benefit. The Iranians are concerned that the world is coming together against Iran once again. I think Putin and Iran see common interests, but I think the Iranians have to understand that Putin does favors for nobody. And Putin sees Iranian weakness not as something he'll support, but as something he'll capitalize on to advance Russia's interests. Russia doesn't do things out of charity. Russia does things to advance Russian interests. And Russia's principal engagements in the Middle East are to swoop into situations where we have wounded parties and they try to find cheap things that advance their interests. And whether this is going to have to do with Russia advancing its interests in Syria or Russia trying to undermine collective action against Russia or whatever it's trying to do, it's not going to benefit the Iranians. It's going to benefit Russia because that's how Russia acts. How does Turkey figure into the Russia-Iran equation next week in this visit? Turkey, of course, is our NATO ally, but they're going to a meeting that nobody in the United States would ever attend or support them attending. So it's complicated. I mean, Turkey has a complicated relationship with the Gulf, which it has been trying over the last six months to make warmer. Turkey has a difficult and complicated relationship with Russia, with which it, it shares a presence in Syria. Turkey has a complicated relationship with the United States over a whole range of things, including Syria, including NATO membership for Sweden and Finland. So I think Turkey, in some ways, typically, is going to be carrying out a very complicated, nuanced negotiation between all of its interests trying to find out just how it can capitalize on tensions between its interests to advance Turkey's national security. There are contradictions in Turkey's policy. And Turkey doesn't shy away from having contradictions in its policy. It actually tries to capitalize on them. It's, it's really, it's an interesting challenge. There, there are issues of, of Turkey getting F-16s. I mean, I think ultimately, their principal interest is with the United States, but they feel if they're too slavishly aligned with the United States, they'll be taken for granted. So I think they're, they're and they're certainly wary of the Iranians, but don't want to have a purely adversarial relationship with the Iranians. So I think in a world where the United States always thinks about, are you with us or against us? Turkey's thinking about What's the bouquet I want to have here? What's the bouquet of interest that I'm trying to assemble? How do I bring a little bit of this and a little bit of that? And this complements this, and this is big, and this is small. And I think that's how, how Turkey's going to treat this meeting. I think it's how Turkey's going to try to deal with the next six months. It has a very, very difficult economic problem, inflation over 70%. They're looking for help from the Gulf. They're looking for help from the United States. Ultimately, they're not going to end up on the Russian side, but they're also not going to carry water for the United States or the Gulf against Russia. Is it smart and strategic for Turkey to be trying to walk this line rather than just aligning itself with the United States and the Gulf states that we're aligned with? I think that it's what Turkey has done for some time and what Turkey's going to do for some time. It's Erdogan's approach. It's his calling card, if you will. 
Yeah, and you know the 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 Turkish military had a different approach, but he's eviscerated the Turkish military and the general staff, and has taken a different approach. John, let's turn to Israel. President Biden has long been pro-Israel. He was to visit Israel by the invitation of Neftali Bennett, now Israel's former prime minister. Given the recent political changes in Israel, how is President Biden going to adjust his agenda, if at all? I think that what Biden is really trying to do, what Biden will do, I think what he's really trying to do is he's trying to support alternatives to Benjamin Netanyahu. He found Netanyahu a problem when he was vice president and Netanyahu was prime minister. He, I think he found Netanyahu to be a problem when he was a senator and Netanyahu was prime minister. He was always much more aligned with Shimon Peres and, and Sharon and people like that. But more broadly, Netanyahu has been a difficult partner for most American presidents because he has a way of undermining them, of, of advancing his own political interests at the expense of American presidents. Let's not forget the Obama-Biden administration didn't like it when Netanyahu came to the United States and spoke before the United States Congress without coordinating with the White House. And just before Biden went to Israel, Netanyahu announced new settlements, which were considered to be a a real stick in the eye. He's not going to say that. He's actually going to meet with Netanyahu. But I think the real purpose of the trip is, is first to reinforce to Americans who care that the president is committed to Israel and Israeli national security, but also to enhance the prospects of this anti-Netanyahu coalition, the leader of whom now is Yair Lapid, whose ideas both on Israel are very compatible with Biden's, but also his ideas about the centrality of the U.S.-Israel relationship and the need to talk to the broader American Jewish community. Lapid has thought a lot about it. He's spoken a lot about it. I think it's Lapid is is very compatible with Biden's thinking about these issues. And while Biden isn't going to to try to interfere in Israeli politics, I think you'll see a lot of efforts to help create images that Lapid can use to help reinforce the positive instincts in Israeli society, that will help some sort of of Lapid-aligned coalition uh, win November 1st. I think Lapid will probably try to do things that that will be helpful to Biden as well. But each one will understand that there could be other political leaders in both Israel and the United States, and you can't shut the door on them. But I think you're going to see two men who feel very comfortable with each other. Lapid and Biden. Lapid and Biden feel very comfortable with each other and want to help each other politically. Biden's also going to be visiting Palestine. What impact will that have on his visit with Israel, if at all? Who's he meeting with in Palestine? What's he, what's he going to be doing? He's going to a, a, a hospital. He's going to meet with Mahmoud Abbas, the president of the Palestinian Authority. It is in some ways pro forma. I think that the perception is that Palestinian politics are not in a healthy place. Abbas is over the limit of his elected term. There is no clear political successor in sight. And they haven't had an election in 10 years. Is that right? It's been more than 10 years. More than 10 years. I think. And how old is Abbas now? 86. 
there are complaints about the, the Palestinian Authority being ineffectual. There are complaints about the Palestinian Authority being corrupt. I think with complete Israeli political disarray and complete Palestinian political disarray, this is not a time that the United States is going to embark on a healthy round of, of peacemaking. But I think that the United States also, and certainly the Biden administration, feels you don't want the Palestinian Authority to collapse. You don't want- Or be isolated. You don't want Palestinians to, to be without any resources. So you want to try to keep things as stable as you can until there's an opportunity to do something different. And how does Hamas and Gaza figure into that equation? Well, Hamas is also powerful in the West Bank. And I think one of the challenges for the United States is how do you ensure that conditions don't get so bad for Palestinians that Hamas gains a majority in both the West Bank and Gaza? In some ways, you can make an argument that you want the West Bank to be better off than Gaza and inspire Palestinians to walk away from Hamas and Gaza. Exactly how that works and how you work it with the Israelis and how you work it with Palestinian leadership and, and not reward bad behavior and all those things. That's why it all becomes hard. But certainly you're seeing a very different approach from the Biden administration than you saw from the Trump administration. The Trump administration was, we're going to pressure the Palestinians until they soften them, their position. And if you have to punish them, we'll punish them. And the Biden approach is we'll engage with people who we think can be partners and we'll try to mitigate and we will wait for a time when there's an opportune moment. And who they think, ostensibly, they think that the Palestinian Authority can be a partner, even though Abbas is well over his term. They haven't had a, an election. Hamas's influence is significant. They think that the partner is the Palestinian Authority. There is no other potential partner. Right. There's no alternative. To deal with. So keeping some sort of Palestinian authority going forward as institution gives you an opportunity when a boss leaves the scene to try to engage and, and do something useful to, to move this conflict in a better direction. You know, one of the, the challenges is that a lot of Israelis have, A, given up hope on a solution to the Arab-Israeli conflict or Arab-Palestinian conflict. Including Benjamin Netanyahu. Well, he keeps talking about eventually, but I think a lot of Israelis, A, think there's no solution to this problem. B, when you start talking about a solution to the problem, you start dividing Israelis. And so Israelis, Israeli political leaders oftentimes would rather talk about issues that unify Israelis, like, like Iran, Iran yeah. rather than, than talking about Palestinian issues. You know, and, and there's a, a legitimate argument to be made that the Palestinians have reduced their demands over time. So why should you make a, a deal now? The more you rush it, if you just wait, you'll have to give up less and less. I, the, the challenge is, has the door to this two-state solution closed? If you don't have a two-state solution, what is the solution? What are the consequences of Israel in the long term incorporating not only a large Arab minority, but potentially an Arab majority. And what happens if you are in sort of a perpetual military occupation of places where Israelis are in, in the minority? So, you know, that's a strategic question, which frankly is a very 
divisive one in Israel, which uh, Israel is not very close to to coming to a solution on. Yeah, and isn't going to get solved on this trip, to be sure. It is certainly not going to get solved in this trip. Well, what, let's talk about Iran for a second. What President Biden has talked about the Iranian threat while talking about regional stability. Do you think this trip will be productive regarding a nuclear deal with Iran? I don't think he's going to move forward on the Iranian piece, but he may move forward on creating a greater understanding, greater cooperation with the countries that feel threatened by Iran, Israel, the Gulf states, and others. The negotiations have are not the negotiations are not an encouraging place. I don't think there's going to be anything on this trip that makes the move to an encouraging place. I think you have reached a situation where both Iranian and US politics are very much leaning against getting to a deal. And I think we've gotten to a point where it's probably too hard to overcome. I mean, it's possible, but it feels to me like the politics in both places are going to make it very, very hard to get a deal from where we are now. And then the question is, what do you do managing without a deal? And that's something where U.S. cooperation with regional partners and greater integration of regional partners can play a constructive role. John, I know this is the Middle East we're talking about, but is there anything easy for President Biden on this trip? They'll announce some technical cooperation things that are going to be sort of happy talk and happy for people. There certainly will be some some positive things that come out of this. I think you'll see some, some initiatives laid out. To me, one of the most important things will be how the president articulates what the U.S. interest in the Middle East is. You know, the president had his people go out last fall. And they said, U.S. has had these really expansive goals in the Middle East, but we haven't resourced them. We're going to bring our goals in line with our resources. But they never announced what the goals or resources were. And everybody in the Middle East said, that's actually a way of saying zero, right? No goals and no resources. And the president's been reluctant to articulate U.S. goals. I think a lot of Americans are hostile to the ideas of having a lot of goals in the Middle East because of a sense the Middle East is a money pit and it can absorb infinite American dollars and infinite American soldiers, and it still won't have peace and security. So why are we there? The president, I believe, is going to try to say something that will address Americans' concerns, address Arabs' concerns to tell the world about what this is going to be, whether this comes across as a Biden doctrine, it may be the first clear restatement of how the U.S. thinks about this part of the world since the Carter Doctrine in 1980. I don't think he wants to do that, but he's going to have to say something and what he says is going to matter. The other thing that's going to matter is what are the images that come out of the president and Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia. I spoke to somebody in the White House and said, you know, they're going to be in the same room. I imagine there's going to be some sort of picture, what that picture will look like, how it will be framed, what the facial expressions will be, what, how close they'll be. I don't know. 
there are different kinds of iconic pictures. Some iconic pictures, like the picture of Ishaq Rabin and, and Yasser Arafat with Bill Clinton on the White House lawn, were obviously posed and pre-conceptualized. And some are just random. They just happen. I don't know what's going to come out of this, but it's certainly possible that some picture ends up being the thing that doesn't speak a thousand words. It speaks more than 10,000 words about the president and Saudi Arabia and what our future is. John, always fascinating and great to talk to you about this complex region and this visit that we'll have to just wait and see what happens. John, thanks so much. Thank you, Andrew. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 